welcome to the podcast Pod Ipsa Locator, a podcast for Connecticut trial attorneys by Connecticut trial attorneys, with your hosts, John Kennedy and Mike Walsh. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pod Ipsa Locator, the podcast of the Connecticut Trial Lawyer Association. My name is Mike Walsh, and I'm here with my co-host, John Kennedy, and we have a really special guest today, Representative Joe Courtney, United States Congressman for the Second District of Connecticut. And let me just say a few words to most of the trial attorneys that listen to this podcast. Joe is one of us. He is a trial attorney. And Joe, you've noticed I'm not using that in past tense because (laughs) once you're a trial attorney, you're always a trial attorney. And up until Joe first got elected in 2006, he did all the same things that you and I do on an everyday basis. He filed complaints. He had personal injury cases. And he really, probably more so than any other federal elected official, can understand what our concerns are and the problems and challenges that we face. Now, he was elected to represent the 2nd Congressional District in 2006, and I don't think it's an overstatement to say that probably more so than any other congressman, Joe represents his district. He's not as interested in getting on CNN or getting a soundbite or getting quoted in New York Times. What he wants to do is he wants to represent the people of the 2nd Congressional District, and boy, he's done that really well. He's the chairman of the House Armed Services Subcommittee committee on sea power and projection forces. And I know most of us don't know what that means or what that is, but for the people of the second congressional district, that's a really big deal because what it does is it brings the submarines to Connecticut. And Joe has done that probably more than any other congressman has ever done in the history of Connecticut too. So Joe, it's really an honor to have you here today. I'm not going to go through all of your other accomplishments, except for one. And the one other one I want to mention is the fact that in a legislative poll, you were named the most conscientious and you were named the Democrat most admired by Republicans. And boy, I think that those two awards are probably the best awards any congressman could ever win. And so let me just start by welcoming you and saying thank you for being here. And just tell us, what is it like being in Congress in Washington (laughs) during these crazy times? Yeah. You know, thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, It's great to see you guys, at least virtually. And, and, you know, to my former classmate, John Kennedy, you know, really, uh, me, by the way, he's, he just he, he was higher than me in the rankings for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Not on the basketball court, though. That's for sure. <laughs> and saying you're higher than John Kennedy in the rankings, I'm not sure that's really. <laughs> so, you know, I'm in my I'm actually just starting my eighth term, which is hard to believe. And, you know, uh, you guys, along with maybe some of the other listeners, will recall that the trial lawyer uh, community really stood up and helped at a pretty critical moment there during the recount process, uh, which, again, up until this election, actually, we still that was still the closest race, general election race yeah. for Congress going back 30 years. And it turns out there's there's a race in Iowa that got decided by six votes this year. Wow. So, wow. so I'm, I'm, I'm going to give up my 83 
about history there in, in terms of uh, deferring to that. But anyway, it's it's been a rough 14 years, generally speaking, just in terms of the polarization. It's been down there, but there, there's no question that what happened from Election Day 2020 up until January 6th took that polarization to a level that, frankly, I don't think anyone ever thought was possible in this country. And and there's there's no question that the events of the, of the 6th were not about uh, you know, repealing Obamacare or the Trump tax bill or, you know, some of the real hot button issues that have really gotten the two sides into sort of trench warfare. I mean, this this was a, a true threat to our democratic institutions. And that that obviously is hard to sort of compartmentalize when you're dealing with some of your colleagues who clearly were grossly negligent, if not supportive of, of uh, this insurrection that was sort of going on there. So that's, I mean, you know, th- that is a question a lot of us are talking about in terms of people that, you know, we work with on our committees, co-sponsor legislation with, it's just sort of, how do you sort of just kind of turn the page that easily on something that was just so profoundly threatening to, you know, this country's basic structures. And um, and to be honest with you, people are still struggling with that a little bit, Mike, yeah. but, uh, and John, you know, the events that day were, were uh, surreal. You guys have been to the Capitol, I'm sure, if not all, most of your listeners have. And generally speaking, I've always felt that's probably one of the safest places yeah. <laughs> you, know, you could imagine. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, after, you know, Gabby Gifford's shooting out in Arizona, you know, the uh, shooting that took place at that softball practice there. I mean, yeah. the, you know, the sort of conventional wisdom was, you know, well, you're safe on the hill in the, in the Capitol yeah, campus, right. but, but, you know, in your district office or, you know, out in the public in the community, maybe that's where you really do got to worry about things. So having the Capitol breached the way it was, and like I said, that day was just completely surreal. The impeachment managers, I think, did an absolutely magnificent job. I'm sort of taking the narrow focus that everybody had, you know, in their own experience, and that includes people across the country, and really creating a much more comprehensive picture of how really close we came to to totally losing control in the Capitol at a a critical moment in terms of counting the election ballots for a a U.S. president. So, um, like I said, I mean, I don't think anyone's quite sort of gotten to a complete stable place right now in terms of how we move forward, but it's it's just a new uh, layer of challenge that we have to sort of figure out uh, moving forward. Joe, yeah, I, I want to salute your bipartisanship. You've always been somebody who was able to reach across the aisle and try to work together. But obviously, as you pointed out, things are a little different and things have gotten to seemingly, seemingly worse in the last 10 years or so. What's it going to take going forward to make that change? I mean, we all thought maybe Biden would have a little honeymoon. It lasted about 30 seconds before people were taking shots at him. The other thing that kind of is strange to me is that, you know, I remember when Joe Courtney was a freshman congressman and he went to he went to Congress with a little humility to try to learn things and work with the people who were senior to him. It seems to me now that we have Congress people who maybe because it's the social media or the Twitter, they're identified immediately and they're out there as celebrities, I guess is what I would use. So how do we fix this problem going forward? so that we can get stuff done. You know, there's a fundamental problem within the Republican Party right now. I mean, and I, yeah. you know, don't want to just sort of act like it's just a one totally one-sided problem because it but it because it, it isn't, but there's no question that, you know, there was a lot of people who I know personally who, you know, would kind of swallow the party line with Trump when Trump was in charge, you know, just kind of saying, you know, I've got no choice because of my base back home in the district. Yeah. And and there were some who basically left, you know, the Charlie Dents of the world from Pennsylvania right. and people mm-hmm. like him who just basically said, I can't do this anymore. And and then 
But as I said, you can sort of at least rationalize that and, and compartmentalize that, as I said, in terms of saying, well, okay, I'd rather have this guy here. And if he has to do some unpleasant things to keep a seat, you know, then we can sort of understand that and move on. I, again, what happened in the sixth was something just, I think it was just a little bit more serious of a problem. And, it, and again, the reverberations of it are still... Uh, going on. I mean, I was telling you guys about off camera that one of the things that I think the speaker and the and the uh, sergeant at arms realized after January 6th is just that the prohibition on carrying weapons oh, yeah. in, into the chamber, um, you know, was not something that people were adhering to that. And it was based on, you know, social media and stuff that like that came out. You know, the rules are very clear. The chamber is off limits to firearms. You know, that's just uh, something that has always been the operating rules in the house. And in order to enforce that, metal detectors had to be put into place, you know, like the ones you go through at the airport. And um, it's sad that we have to do that. But as as we know now, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, one member was caught with a gun going through uh, the metal detector, which is yeah. a stunning act of stupidity. <laughs> stupidity. <laughs> and others were others were just refusing to go through. And it was pretty obvious why they were refusing. You know, some yeah. were trying to claim some sort of uh, principle. But it, the real reason is because I think they had something to hide. So, yeah. you know, now we have these heavy fines. If you get it's a thousand dollars first offense and 10,000 for a second offense. And it comes out of your paycheck. Wow. If, if wow. You don't go through. Yeah. yeah. No, this is not something you can, you know, have your campaign paid for. And, um, right. But again, it's it's the folks who oppose it. I mean, it's they're, they're very vocal. They're um, unpleasant to the cops who's, you know, that's their job. You know, to just, again, just like a TSA agent at the airport. And yeah, that's the thing that gets me. It's just like, we do all of us fly to Washington. You know, you don't think twice about going through metal detectors. Right. And what is right. the problem here? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, I mean, that just kind of gives you a little bit of the flavor that this thing is not settled down yet. Yeah. Hey, one of the things that trial attorneys, we live in fear of immunity bills right. and COVID. We've been hearing about here just locally in Connecticut, people trying to get immunity because of this and because of that. And we have a pretty good voice here in the Connecticut legislature. You know, Jay Malsinski is our lobbyist and we feel like we're heard. But on a national level, boy, if an immunity bill passed, that could really, really hurt us. And I'm just wondering, have you seen any signs of any kind of traction at the national level of any kind of immunity bill? So when we had the first four COVID bills in March of 2020, um, you know, culminating with the CARES Act, I think, again, the severity of the lockdown and the fear factor, people really did kind of behave in terms of not trying to put in poison pills, you know, into the package that was there. Again, as we uh, tried to get a HEROES Act passed later, which the House passed twice. Yeah, it looks a lot like the Biden rescue plan that we're seeing unfold now. McConnell was clearly trying to use that as a right, um, right. as an opportunity to put through uh, immunity. And again, whatever sort of argument someone wanted to put forward about the fact that, you know, we're in a pandemic and it's an, an emergency and there needs to be some emergency sort of relief, quote unquote, his his immunity bill had nothing to do with that yeah. kind of a framework. I mean, it yeah. was, you it know, never does. Yeah, no, it was it was complete, you know, immunity from malpractice, medical malpractice, yeah, right. nothing to do with treating someone for COVID. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, I mean, it was kind of rough, though, because the pressure to pass another COVID bill was very intense on Speaker Pelosi and Schumer and these guys. But that was really, that was a line she refused to cross. Which is you know, in terms of, of making a deal. Yeah. And then we finally did do the deal while Trump was still in office in December. Again, there was no immunity. That's and great. Biden, you know, Biden has zero 
on, on that in terms of the package that we're moving forward. Yes. So by the way, if you want a like textbook example of why elections matter, you know, that the way that sort of issue now has disappeared from the, yeah. uh, it, it, it shows that, you know, all the participation that you and your members engage in really matters. It matters. Yeah. That's a good point. You mentioned the American Rescue Plan, Joe. How close are we to having that go through? And what other things do you see in the next year or so that are going to be big issues in the House? You know, the American Rescue Plan uh, is in the process of moving at mock speed because we got reconciliation process, which I think most of your listeners you know, understand that that yeah. allows for an accelerated process and 51 votes only in the Senate. So, you know, the bill writing has been going on this past week. I'm on one of the committees that had a, a pretty big bucket, you know, education and labor. And uh, next week, budget committee meets on Monday. They're going to finish off the language. And we're told by the speaker's office and the majority leader's office, don't make any plans for the following weekend because we're going to stay in as long as it takes to get this done in the House. And then the Senate, because this thing really can't be amended under the rules, it's going to be pretty much untouched as it goes through the Senate, subject to what's called the bird rule, which again, the parliamentarian can strike items that they feel don't comply with reconciliation. So again, I think it's going to be a very well-received package when people sort of understand, you know, obviously we're going to get the the new round of payments, the $1,400 for individuals below $75,150 for a couple. Unemployment extension that pushes it out past March 15th, which is when the cliff occurs now. Great, you know, great new investment for the state of Connecticut, you know, the states and local towns, which uh, again, it's going to take a lot of pressure off local budgets and, and state budgets in terms of vital services and uh, and avoid tax increases, which is what, what would happen if the states had to deal with the loss of revenue that's there. So Timothy Egan, who writes for the New York Times, had a very good piece this morning where he was really kind of comparing this to almost like a Roosevelt moment for Biden, you know, that it's, um, you know, this very substantial quick sort of new deal kind of thing that's moving through that people are going to feel right away. And and I frankly, you know, I think that's going to give him tremendous political boost. Uh, Again, there's groups like the U.S. Chamber that are totally behind this because they they get at least the the economic argument. This is really going to protect the economy. And it sounds like the Republicans are going to take a party line position in opposition, which I I have to tell you, I don't quite understand the political upside voting against a bill that gives people $1,400. Yeah, I think it's going to be a, will it be a straight party vote. Does that mean? Is that the- you know? Again, I can, there's some Republicans from sort of suburban northeastern districts where you know that just makes no sense to me. Right? You know, how, how you can vote no on that? You know, Connecticut's actually in fairly decent shape in terms of its budget. They need. I mean, we need this help in the state to help again avoid you know laying off critical services and raising taxes. New York State. I mean, this is like existential. I mean, if, if if they don't get that help, oh, they, right. they are, I mean, they're like on bank, they're in bankruptcy territory. Wow. Right, right. So, yeah. I've got to hand it to, to Joe Biden. There was a lot of pressure on him with bipartisanship argument. Yeah. I think Biden learned, though, from Obama and the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, I think you could say Obama reached out a little bit too long to the Republicans and the Republicans kind of strung him along a little bit. And I think Obama really did try to try to reach you know, consensus and he just never could. But I think Biden played it smart. He came in and he was open to 
listening to him. But boy, he didn't he didn't waste any time. He said, look, if you guys don't want to negotiate reasonably, forget it. I'm going ahead. And I think that was the right thing to do, to tell you the truth, because now it looks like we're going to going to get past hopefully. But hey, let me ask you, Joe, about Pelosi. She is a lover or a hater. She's a remarkable person. I mean, she really has run the Democratic caucus. And we all know she's in her last year, supposedly, or last term, I should say. What do you think is going to happen when her term is over with regards to leadership in the party? Well, again, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, her uh, performance since she took over again as speaker, um, I think is history book stuff. I mean, and, and I think she's up there with Rayburn and the great speakers in, in American history. And I think, you know, this rescue plan vote, which is coming up, which, you know, again, it's we have a very slender majority. So there, you really have to keep people together and kind of marching forward. Our caucus, you know, definitely has its factions and nobody, in my opinion, can you know, hold it together like Nancy. I mean, she just, she's yeah. in a <laughs> class of her own. So, um, you know, we've got some, I think, upcoming, up and coming young leaders in the, in the caucus, you know, Hakeem Jeffries from New York city, yeah. who's uh, yeah. chairman of the caucus right now was one of the impeachment managers. You know, I think in the Ukraine impeachment, if I'm not, my memory's not what it used to be. Impeachment 1.0. <laughs> Right. And I mean, and he really impressive guy and somebody that I think, you know, also kind of has that ability to uh, talk to all the caucuses, you know, within the caucus. But it's um, I, I know Joe Biden's really happy. Nancy's uh, in the saddle right now at a yeah. critical time. You know, I had a chance actually to travel with her before COVID over to Ireland and UK. Uh, with a, there's a group called the Friends of Ireland Caucus, believe it or not. And, no kidding. Uh, but, it, but it was during, you know, it was in the middle of Brexit. We all qualify uh, for that caucus. That's right, yeah. that's right. That's right. I figured that. But anyway, you know, it was in the middle of Brexit and, you know, Boris Johnson could care less about the Good Friday peace accords or, you know, the, you know, people in Ireland in general. And, and, and Trump was definitely, and his, the ambassador in London were completely Boris Johnson fanboys. And um, anyway, Nancy went over, Nancy went over there. And I got to tell you, the reception she got in London, in Dublin, and up in Belfast, because that, you know, sort of made the route. Um, it was a side of her in terms of just the, the world's view of Pelosi that was just, you know, just amazing. You know, wow. I mean, she and, and she and I'll tell you, she um, she rose to the moment. I mean, she gave a speech in the, in the dial, you know, the Irish Parliament in Dublin, yeah. which the, the last I think Reagan spoke there and Kennedy spoke there. And it's you know, great honor to, to do that. And I mean, it was just one standing ovation after another. Because wow. I mean, her message was if they screw around with the Good Friday Peace Accord, the UK can forget any kind of bilateral trade deal between the US right. and the UK, which really freaked people out in, in, in London. And it was a very powerful message. So she's 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 really she's a special person. I hope she was drinking Guinness instead of that Napa Chardonnay. <laughs> you know, she doesn't drink despite oh, some really? of the uh, uh, you know, the, but but the Irish caucus uh, tried to do their best to. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what happens in Ireland stays in Ireland. That's right. <laughs> but uh, but Nancy Pelosi's kind of left the door open a little bit, right? That she might be back. Yeah. 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 I mean, and and it's and you know, if nothing else, that that makes sure that she's not an instant lame duck. Which Washington, as as uh, John Dingle used to say, they bury the bodies warm. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so what what's 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 else's big 
this year in the in this Congress? What else do you see coming up? It's going to be a yeah. A, I mean, in terms that of slender majority that you have, what chances yeah. are there that things are going to get through? You know, if I was giving you know, and and we we get an opportunity to do that with the Speaker and certainly the White House, but you know, an infrastructure bill I think is really should be our number two after the COVID relief bill yeah. because you know at some point we got to get past sort of disaster sort of phase of assistance from Washington. We got to get sort of in a in a more growth sort of phase. Yeah. And uh, we all know, you know, the infrastructure in this country is almost an embarrassment, you know, in terms of yeah. roads, bridges, rail, uh, you know, our airports. And uh, the House Democrats actually put together a really big package in the last Congress, which did pass. Again, it got totally kind of overlooked because no one knew. I mean, everyone knew that Mitch was going to kill it, you know, in the Senate. Yeah, but I, but I, I think you know it's going to be, um, you know, to me that that would be really just just what the country needs, you know, and and um, again, it's another consensus issue. I mean, you can get support from unaffiliated voters and business groups, and uh, you know, everybody knows that we we we. We have a huge to-do list out there in terms of that sort of part of the economy. And, and the, you know, the economists will tell you, you know, it has that multiplier effect in terms of, you know, growing jobs and income. Yeah. And that's a perfect bipartisan issue. I mean, right, you know, exactly. they're going together on that. What can you get them together on? You know, I mean, Rosa DeLauro might have a lot to say about well, that. Yeah. No, I mean. First time in history, anyone from Connecticut's had that job, chair of the appropriations committee. Big job, yeah. Yeah. And by the way, um, the Sea Power subcommittee that that, uh, Mike mentioned, we we did we did check with the House historian, and the last time anyone from Connecticut chaired a Navy committee or subcommittee was uh, 1872. (laughs) And uh, an electric boat is going gangbusters, right? I mean, I've heard they're hiring them. I mean, you you've gotten them some big contracts, right? We have, and you know, again, something that people, and again, right now, just for some of your listeners, you know, we're talking about recapitalizing the existing fleet, which is, you know, been on sort of a downward trend, partly because there really wasn't much demand for them, but that's completely changed. Yeah, you know, with what's going on in the Indo-Pacific, and and now Putin's, you know, kind of recapitalizing his submarine fleet. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, but Trump cut a, a sum in, in his budget last year, and we right. have to. I mean, that's it, that's a big cut to to restore, but we did it. Yeah, I mean, EB just announced last couple of weeks ago that they now have the biggest backlog in the history of the country of the company wow. and the you know the hiring uh, they're at 17,000 now between Groton and Quonset Point Rhode Island again the it's about 12 or 13,000 in Connecticut and 6 or 7 over at Quonset and that's going to go up well over 20,000 uh, wow. during this this decade those are good jobs. Oh, so. great. Oh, good jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Not like the casino where you go and, you know, you get a few bucks over minimum wage. I mean, those are jobs you can live on. You know, you can have a, have a family on those jobs. You know, what's fascinating me, um, Joe, is that across the country in Georgia and Arizona and even Texas, it seems like some of these traditional conservative Republican states are actually starting, I don't know, because of demographics or something, but they're actually starting to move Democratic. I mean, look at Georgia. You know, we got two Democratic uh, senators. In terms of the big picture, in terms of what's going on in the United States and politics and shifts, how do you see it? What do you think is going on? So it was still a bit of a mixed bag in terms of 2020. Uh, Again, the good news is it was the largest turnout percentage-wise since 1906, you know, which is... and and I think frankly that at the end of the day is what carried Biden uh, into office and and at least 
you know, by our fingernails, you know, keep control of both the House and the Senate. Again, I think, uh, you know, I have a brother who lives in Arizona and you guys been out there, I'm sure, and, and you know, yeah. the suburbs of Atlanta. I mean, you know, obviously there's been a lot going on in terms of demographic change there. And, and but what it took was basically, you know, I think a, a much more concerted effort to, you know, mobilize people and get them to the polls. And COVID, anything, it, you know, by allowing sort of more of a mail-in option, you know, which has been standard in many states like Colorado and other places, you know, making that pretty much universal across the country is one of the reasons why I think turnout went up so high. And, uh, and that's why I think retaining that ability for to make it easier for people to vote, I think is critical for Democrats. I mean, it's just, you know, and, and it's, yeah. you already see Republican controlled legislatures trying to turn the clock back, right. you know, at, since November even. But, you know, you know, I also think in that piece I mentioned earlier, uh, that was in the Times this morning by Tim Egan, Biden's success also is critical. I think people, you know, have to really see that it really made a difference to put him in the White House and, and you know, elect those two senators in Georgia. One interesting polling item from Georgia was that that $2,000 check that even Trump wanted Congress to do, McConnell blocking that, you know, really created an incredible opening for for the two Democrats that are there. But I'll tell you what, if we don't get that check out the door... Yeah. <laughs> well, really, it's and that's really the, the thing that Democrats have got to stay very focused on is just that, you know, we can't have endless debates and, and we've really got to just lock arms and, and, and get help out there. And, and that's, you know, I think that's the one thing that I think we can really do to protect ourselves from the next midterm in the next midterm, which, you know, historically is always a, a challenging time for a new president. Yeah, right. Right. That's what's been so impressive. I mean, he is just, he, I think he was open to negotiation, but yeah. when they didn't want to negotiate, he just charged ahead. And I was so glad to see that, you know? Yes. But I'm sorry, John. I stopped. Obama on. had kind of a, a little different situation that he didn't have a majority in the Senate, which made things really, really difficult for him. So, Joe, I got to ask you about here in Connecticut. I know you're most on the federal level, but Governor Lamont uh, said he was going to be a one-term governor. What what do you, looks like he's doing a pretty admirable job with the uh, pandemic. What do you think the future is for Governor Lamont, or have you heard anything in that regard? I mean, he keeps his guards pretty close when sort of future elections come up, you know, and I, and I consider myself a friend of his and campaigned with him. And, you know, we text each other and call each other um, on, you know, stuff that's going on in the district. You know, my general sort of feeling is that he's gotten a lot more comfortable in the job. And, it, you know, part of it was just, you know, being able to really, uh, you know, show his his best qualities, you know, during COVID, which was to be, you know, very accessible. And, you know, I thought he was a good communicator um, and was not as maybe, I mean, Cuomo obviously was kind of the media star there, but I, I think sometimes it's too um, almost authoritarian, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that, does, that doesn't have authoritarianism in him. So I, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not maybe he's going to reconsider and, and uh, you know, make another run at it. And if he doesn't, I think it's a wide open race for, for governor, I think, in, on the Democratic side. Yeah, yeah. Which will not include me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know whether Mike has any more questions, but I, I, I do not. And I, I just wanted to say that I've said this because I've known Joe for, I don't know, 45 years since we were in law school together. It's uh, if there anybody who's cynical about government and public service, this is the guy you should talk to because he's he's the real deal. He really cares and he tries and uh, he knows what the issues are. And he is a bipartisan guy. And so if we had more people like you, Joe, I think we'd all be a lot better off in Congress. Thank you, John. Yeah. That means a lot. 
And I just want to second that. I mean, you're such a down-to-earth guy. You do not have an artificial bone in your body. And it's such a pleasure talking to you, Joe. It really is, because you've achieved so much. You're at such a such a high level, but you're still willing to do something like this. And you really, I meant what I said before, you really do connect with the district and those of us who know you. So, uh, you know, thank you for doing such a good job and, and staying in touch with us. And uh, uh, it, it was a pleasure. And, you know, hopefully we can do it again, because I yeah, think it's going to be an exciting, an exciting couple years so right uh, yeah. that's great Good. thanks a lot all right thank take you, care Joe. yeah thank yeah. you thank you for joining us on pod ipsa locator the number to contact the ctla is 860-522-4345 their website is located at cttriallawyers.org